You're listening to ReachMD, and this is Lipid Illumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown, and with me today is my good friend, Dr. Robert Weil, who is the Vice Chair of the Department of OB-GYN and Adjunct Professor of Family and Preventative Medicine, as well as the Chief of Gynecology of the VA Medical Center in Oklahoma City. Bob is also a member of the Board of Directors of the National Lipid Association and a penultimate lipidologist. He's one of our great resources because you have this expertise in both uh, OB-GYN, pregnancy, and uh, dyslipidemia, which a lot of us cardiology geeks and internal medicine geeks don't have. So I'm really excited to talk to you today about choosing the right contraception in women with dyslipidemia. In fact, I'm particularly excited because I've had questions on this before, and I never hesitate to call you and ask for your advice. That's a great part about the NLA. Just pick up the phone and talk to somebody, share ideas. It's wonderful. Yeah, well, you definitely helped me in a patient I had with hypertriglyceridemia, so I'm going to... Two-way street. You can share me with some of that. So, uh, and I probably didn't mention that uh, your adjunct professor of family and preventative medicine and the vice chair of OB-GYN is at University of Oklahoma. Yes, it, it's at right. o, OU. And the chief of gynecology is at the VA Medical Center, right? Right, in, that, in Oklahoma City. Okay, I want to get your credentials right. So, Bob, let's talk about this a little bit. This is a real common problem uh, in terms of uh, being fooled sometimes where you have a young lady with severe dyslipidemia, they get labeled as FH, and it turns out it's possibly their contraception they're taking, or uh, even though it isn't directly our topic, drawing blood work on pregnant women and trying to interpret what the heck to do with it. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the types of dyslipidemia you might see in a woman of childbearing age, first of all, and who also wants to be on contraception, and how would you make a choice? That would be the first question. And the second question is, if you get a patient referred to you who's already on contraception and you see dyslipidemia, mm-hmm. how do you sort out whether the contraceptive is the culprit or the patient has some underlying uh, lipid disorder? Okay, both are good questions. Let's go to the first one. I, I think the way to think about it is just like we tend to think of dyslipidemia. Think about challenges with mixed dyslipidemia or LDL disorders, in this case familial uh, hyperlipidemia. So why do we screen reproductive age women? Because we want to pick up early those conditions that we can make a large impact. So when we screen, we screen for FH, either homozygous or heterozygous. We look for mixed dyslipidemia, which are common with an ever-increasing obesity concept. The problem is, is we could have another enzyme defect in addition when we measure a lipid profile and screen properly. So screening is important. Now, when we start to counsel people regarding contraceptive choices, it's important to make an accurate diagnosis, understand targets and goals, and understand how contraceptive choice impacts that. So what do we do? Let's say we have a patient who, in spite of appropriate diet and exercise, has other concerns to help drive a contraceptive choice. The thing to remember for all of us is is the risk to her, if she becomes pregnant, is riskier than any contraceptive choice we make. So we got to weigh risk and benefit balance choices to make an appropriate decision. So in that case, you're talking about someone maybe with pretty significant hypertriglyceridemia where getting pregnant might 
aggravate that and be a serious health hazard to her. Correct, or if she has uh, FH, regardless, or if she has an unusual factor V Leiden problem, the real choice for considering contraceptive choice is, I think, number one, what's going to be making her adherent, and I think understanding thrombotic risk. So we have to take that in consideration as well as the changes that will happen to the lipids when the patient's on a given contraceptive choice. So what do we do? Well, we assess her cardiovascular risk profile like we would anybody else. And then we try to decide for her what's going to work for her. So how do we think about that? Well, if she's young, she has theoretically less risk, whatever the disorder. If she gets older or has another comorbidity, let's say obesity, then her thrombotic risk goes up. If she has a family history that's positive, for clotting problem or lipid problem with associated atherogenic vascular change, then her compounded risk goes up. If she has, let's say, factor V Leiden, she's got a risk with a pill, but if she has factor V Leiden and then she gets pregnant, that risk is many times as high. So it's a contraceptive choice, understanding that doing nothing and letting her get pregnant is riskier than whatever choice she makes. So if she's young enough, there are a lot of considerations that go into a choice for her. She has to understand menstrual function and how it works. She has to understand the side effects with whatever treatment option we give her. She's got to understand what is she going to use that's going to make her compliant. Um, What's her situation? Is she sexually active at risk now? Is she going to plan to be later? That's all important. So how to make a choice? Well, we try to explain what we can for... In, in terms that patients can understand what the risks and benefits are with every single choice. So it does make a difference if she has a high LDL or high triglycerides. We know that if somebody has significant hypertriglyceridemia, uncontrolled, for either an enzyme, polygenic, or monogenic reason, enzymatic reason, um, that is, is not a good situation where we use combination oral contraceptives that have an estrogenic component. That'll definitely aggravate their triglycerides, and we could actually precipitate a pancreatitis. Turns out that if she takes transdermal oral contraception or vaginal contraception, we don't, we don't get any wiggle room. There's the same kind of risk as it is with combination pills. So what does that leave us with? Well, she may want to use an implantable, implanon, progestin-only medicine in general. Those tend to be fairly lipid-neutral. She may be challenged with weight gain concerns incidental to either of these two disorders or part and parcel of part of them. And then I don't like, in a, certainly in a young reproductive age woman who may want to have fertility in the future, giving somebody like that Depo-Provera, which is an injectable progestin. The reason is is so many of them have weight gain problems, and then they aggravate their insulin resistance. So probably one of the better choices is, is an IUD, and there are several on the market and several coming on the market. There's a progestin-only. The more widely used one now is the Marina, which is a five-year progestin-only, very active in the uterine cavity, sometimes associated with irregular bleeding in the beginning, but then over after the first three months, commonly associated with lack of menses altogether. There's a Skyla, which is now a three-year uh, similar type device, to the marina, but it's three years less medication. It's important to realize with both medicines, they're circulating progestin, and that progestin is slightly androgenic. 
with a higher dose, you can have slightly greater impact on lipids. And you could use a progestin-only pill. The challenge with the progestin-only pill is you've got to remember to take it hopefully the same time every single day. So you have to have a compliant person. And you've got to realize that oftentimes vaginal spotting leads to a lack of compliance. So those are all important considerations in terms of choice. Now, how do we classify and how do we remember what's a good choice and how do, can we pay attention to all this? Probably the best thing to, to tell people is there are two great websites to go to to help people understand appropriate choices with multiple medical comorbidities to make choice. Let's say we're focusing on dyslipidemia. You can go to the CDC, go under medical complications. There's a wonderful chart in there. It'll give you a classification of risks and benefits for each type of contraceptive choice. And if you look very carefully, let's say, for example, um, combinational contraceptives, or let's say a marina, which is the progestin only, they'll be classified. You might see, a, you'll, you'll note that all of them are class two, which means used when the benefit seems to outweigh the risk. But there are maybe two or class two or three for the combinational contraceptive and the transdermal preparation or the vaginal preparation. So that weighs in your decision. I think the overall thing is an informed patient, understanding how she's going to be compliant and use it and what, what works for her. And it really depends a bit on her situation. She's a young gal that wants to go off to college, and she's not sexually active now, but she never knows when she's going to be, and we're dealing with this dyslipidemia. The nice part about not having to remember to take a pill every day uh, and, and progestin IUD has a real benefit for for compliance and, and maintaining something that's useful. The major risk is with insertion, and that risk is really quite manageable. Most people do well if they've never been pregnant or if they've had multiple pregnancies. Sometimes there are other gynecologic conditions that now have to make us make an appropriate other choice, and we need to pay attention to that. Later in reproductive years, about uh, above age 30, roughly 30% of um, women have fibroids, and that can distort the uterine cavity. It's a, a relative challenge for an IUD. So we've got to make a couple choices when we have certain complex or more confounding gynecologic conditions in addition to our concern about dyslipidemia. So, so that's a, really a fantastic Review. I didn't have to interrupt you because you reviewed everything. But I, I wanted to ask you uh, if I'm getting you right. Mm -hmm. So you try to avoid the estrogen component with hypertriglyceridemia. You really do because you can precipitate a pancreatitis with an estrogen-containing uh, sure. combination Sa pill. Same thing we think about in uh, postmenopausal women in terms of how much estrogen we're going to give them. But one thing we talk about in the postmenopausal woman with hypertriglyceridemia, mm -hmm. which I thought was intriguing about what you said, mm -hmm. was that uh, we switch them to transdermal, and it seems like they don't get the same triglyceride elevation. But you mentioned that transdermal combination contraceptives still affect the triglycerides. They really do, and so does vaginal. Uh, am, I, am I wrong in assuming no. that the estrogen replacement therapy in the postmenopausal woman is better given transdermally if they have hypertriglyceride? We tend to think that uh, the transdermal approach to estrogen only has less of a first-pass oral effect, so the triglyceride-raising challenge is not as severe. Don't forget, though, there can be a second and third pass to the liver, so it'll help by making it transdermal, so it's a relative judgment issue.
Now, the difference between a patch used for combination oral contraceptive in a younger reproductive age woman or a postmenopausal woman is you have a higher steroid load with a combination pill. So if you have a, an estrogen combination with a progestin, the way to think about that, that could be anywhere between two and seven to nine times as much steroid load compared to postmenopausal estrogen. So now you've got a larger steroid load, and it turns out the thrombotic risk seems to track the same, whether it be transdermal or vaginal or combination oral contraceptive. So it's thrombotic risk that drives our decision-making, and then we watch the reflection on the lipids, and it's important to realize that when people are taking these preparations, there are changes in lipids. Now, the good news is, on the average, those changes are not dramatic, as we would call dramatic, like 50% LDL change or, 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 or whatever. But they are quite noticeable, depending on the type. So we've got to understand how that works. And it turns out that the, I don't want to make it too complicated, but the type of oral contraceptive uh, has, a, has an effect depending on what's in it. Hard to, it's the kind of thing you need to look up on a chart, but the way to think about it is the more estrogenic, total estrogenic effect, the more triglyceride raising, and that could be as high as 20-30%. The more estrogenic in the overall content of the pill, the better the LDL lowering. And that's not dramatic, but it's noticeable. And the HDL raising. And pills convert into progestins or androgenic progestins. It's really more complicated than that. It's an estrogenic anti-estrogenic, progestational, androgenic, anti-androgenic combination. Well, some total is basically what's the effect? What's the bioassay effect? The bioassay effect seems to be such that the more estrogenic overall effect, the lower the L LDL on its use, complicated by how long it's used and other, other comorbidities that intervene. And in general, uh, the, the more estrogenic, the higher the triglyceride raising, if you use a progestin-only uh, oral contraceptive or injectable or a, an implanon, like an injectable progestin, those tend to be a little more lipid-neutral because of their predominantly progestational effect. On the other hand, you don't get off scot-free because you still got to monitor them. So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Alan Brown. With me today is Dr. Robert Wild, professor of obstetrics and gynecology and also an adjunct professor of family and preventative medicine at University of Oklahoma and chief of gynecology at the VA Medical Center in Oklahoma City. So, Bob, you know, that was a lot of stuff that was very, very interesting. Um, I at least have this feeling, I hate to quote my experience, that I've had a couple cases that I thought had FH, actually, mm -hmm. with quite high LDLs and young women who were on contraceptives. Mm -hmm. And I stopped their contraceptive just to see what would happen. Mm -hmm. And not all of them, but at least several of them had their numbers improve. Mm -hmm. So uh, we tend to think that the triglycerides are going to be affected by oral contraceptives, but how common is it to see the LDL high? And when would you suspect when you have such a patient that it might be their contraceptive versus a genetic disorder like familial hypercholesterolemia? Well, the first thing I would do is look at the type of contraceptive they're on. In general, if it's a, if it's a metab metabolizes as more androgenic progestin, they're more likely to have an LDL raising effect. So it depends a little bit on what they're on. What they're on. It also depends a little bit on what other things are going on, other comorbidities in their diet and exercise, and what other medicines and 
what environment are they in? Are they a track star person? They haven't told you about their anabolic steroids. And uh, there are a host of things. We, get, we have to think on, in a contraceptive user about all the other secondary causes as well. But if you want to know pure effect, the more androgenic the progestin in the pill, the more likely they're going to get oral, that's in an oral contraceptive, the more likely they're going to get LDL elevation. Now the problem with all the studies is they're tough to compare side to side. There are different durations of follow-up, three months, six months, 12 months. So if you, if, if, like I've done, if you combine the, the magnitude effect, they're not all head-to-head comparisons. So they're very difficult. You can just get general trends. And then you can get average changes that you see in a group. But your patient may be an individual, and that individual response could be quite sporadic, so it's important to know they can affect lipids, kind of predict them, look for other things, and you may run into the experience you ran into. Yeah, and I've found myself in that uh, conundrum where I actually have to know, does this patient have FH? What's the downside if they get pregnant? Because if I tell them to go off the contraception so that we can see where they have a genetic disorder Mm -hmm. rather than start a statin in somebody where their lipids might be due to their contraception and not due to a genetic disorder. Uh, And I always ask the patient, what will happen if you get pregnant? If it's a young unmarried lady who is going to ruin her life, then you've got to weigh the pluses and minuses. So you bring up an important point. It's important to think about treating her her FH and assuring that her targets are, are directed correctly and her goals are met. And I think the NLA does an excellent job in our special population document for that. That's a good plug. Part two of the NLA recommendations that were just published really has a phenomenal section on all special populations, but particularly on uh, women of childbearing age, pregnancy. So it's really important to keep her um, uh, FH under control. And then, in addition, assure that she's going to get proper contraceptive use that's a good quality type so she doesn't get pregnant. She needs to know that we really don't want her to be taking a statin if she gets pregnant. But nowadays, people tend to listen and learn, and sometimes they have planned, sometimes unplanned. Unfortunately, across all of our populations, 50% of pregnancies or 40% or so are unplanned. So it depends on the setting you're in and the group of patients you're seeing. But if we can get the message across, always assure a type of contraception. There's no reason not to use statins. In, in reproductive age women. And, and I think our concern and fear about, quote, category X has kind of blinded us for not treating dyslipidemic patients properly earlier in their reproductive life. And just make sure that you tell them. I always document in the chart somewhere between six and eight weeks prior to attempting to conceive, you stop your medicine. It's interesting. We've done a meta-analysis we just submitted to the Journal of Clinical Lipidology looking at uh, what science is there about stopping at three months ahead of time or a month. The answer is there's not much science at all. It tends to empirically evolve. And we, we learned several things that kind of reinforce what I'm saying is when statins are needed, if you sure contraception, they need to be used. We know we have great evidence regarding it. What we learned from the meta-analysis is several things. In spite of multiple study designs, there's not really good quality evidence that other than in animals, that the statin itself is causing the anomaly. Now, there are mixed reports, and you're never going to get an appropriate randomized trial, so you're always dealing with observational information with all its warts. Do a case control study, you're going to find out 
what's going to happen is people are going to over-report if they have an anomaly about that medicine. So there's shortcomings. There's um, individual case reports. There's cohort studies. And so we've grouped them accordingly, trying to take those study design weaknesses. Here's some things we learned from that. What we learned is no good quality evidence that it raises risk for birth defects. Much safer to say that in water-soluble statins versus lipid-soluble ones. No good evidence to suggest that we have to stop at three months ahead of time or four months. But if you think about it, if a person is planning a pregnancy, a lot of gynecologists will tell them, and, and from a family planning point of view or a fertility point of view, it might be smart to kind of wait a cycle anyway to be sure you're going to have a return of ovulation, and that kind of covers you in both those clinical decisions, if that makes sense. So stop it when you stop your contraception, basically. Stop it when you stop your contraception. Wait for a cycle before you're attempting, because uh, then you're comfortable that they're off the medicine. Now, it might surprise a lot of listeners to realize that there's a now uh, NICHD study showing that statins are used to prevent preeclampsia during pregnancy. That's actually uh, now published as a pilot study. It's a water-soluble one. It's a great review to look at the congenital anomaly risk with water-soluble statins. And your paper, looking at this meta-analysis, that's going to be in the Journal of Clinical Lipidology? We hope so. We just submitted it. All right. Well, Dean Corrales is the first author. I wish you the best of luck on that. I have a lot of further questions. It's unfortunate we ran out of time. I know you have some interesting thoughts on uh, the dangers of not treating FH females during their pregnancy and what that might do to affect... Uh, the fetus and the mother long-term. Theoretical, but fascinating. I'd love to hear more about that, but we're going to have to save that for another podcast. Maybe we can do that on another chapter. Yeah, absolutely. I can't thank you enough, uh, Bob. Dr. Robert Wild, a good friend, brilliant guy, and uh, who has a, a, a vantage point that many of us don't in terms of dealing with women of childbearing age with dyslipidemia. Thank you very much, Bob, for being here. My pleasure. Appreciate your invite. I'm Dr. Alan Brown. You've been listening to Lipid Lumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association on ReachMD. Please visit ReachMD.com lipids, where you can listen to this podcast and the others in the series. Please make sure you leave some comments and share your comments with us. We definitely welcome your feedback. I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to listen to Lipid Luminations. And then once again, I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown. Thanks for listening.